I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we continue our focus on the special three-week event for the Netflix series Unsolved Mysteries. This week, we're looking at the episode, What Happened to Josh? It's been five years since a St. John student was last seen. No one knows exactly what happened to Josh Gimo. Still, his family and friends hope for his return. In 2002, Josh Guimond left a party at St. John's University in Minnesota and was last seen walking back to his apartment. When his friends realized he never made it home, it kicked off a massive search of the area's woods and waterways. What could have contributed to Josh's disappearance? The investigation would have authorities explore a romantic rivalry, a church abuse scandal, a potential killer targeting students in the area, and online secrets someone wanted erased from a hard drive. Could any of these things answer the question, what happened to Josh? I think Josh probably had secrets. Maybe they got him killed. I don't know. I wish that whoever knew those secrets would come forward. Bring them to light. And I'm joined by director Gabe Torres. Gabe, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hey, thank you, Rebecca. Great to be here. So you're making your return to Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, You direct two episodes in volume three. The first was Something in the Sky about a possible UFO sighting over Lake Michigan 30 years ago. This is tough for a scientist to admit. And so I'm just going to have to say the way they acted, even though intelligent, They didn't act human. And this week's episode, What Happened to Josh? But 22 years ago, when you were starting out, you directed several episodes of the original Unsolved Mysteries. Is this a sort of homecoming for you? It is. It is. It was was really great to get the call from uh, Terry Muir when she told me, uh, we're coming back and we're going to be on uh, Netflix. And I said, that's amazing. And she said, you know, I really want someone to come back who has a, you know, a foot in the old series but also is a filmmaker and a movie maker who can, you know, help transform the the show into the cinematic vision that Netflix has for it and that the new incarnation had. And I said, I'd be glad to. And, and I came back and it was just a lot of fun. It's a pleasure working with uh, the team from, from Unsolved and uh, a lot of young people on the crew now and new faces. But it's great to sort of have my foot in both worlds, the new and the old. You know, I am curious about that because you said it, it's like a more cinematic version now. Yes. So are you think you're thinking about format differently? Obviously, TVs are shaped differently now than they used to be when the original Unsolved was out. What other things are you thinking about that have changed in terms of the format between old and new? Yeah, it, it really is the style of storytelling. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, we were used to being maybe have our hands held a little more in the storytelling. So you'd have the the, the Robert Stack, the host you know, who we, who's the iconic host of, of Unsolved Mysteries, who would come in and set the scene. And then we'd have him narrate and take us through the story. Now we're letting visuals tell the story and we're letting the interviewees tell the story. That's something, you know, viewers will notice is there is no narrator and no host in the new incarnation. So it's, it's keeping in time with sort of the, 
you know, the style of Netflix true crime documentary uh, that's being done now and that people are just eating up. Uh, and I think it's a lot of fun. It's a much more challenging kind of storytelling. But for me as a filmmaker, it's a much more satisfying style of storytelling. We are letting the visuals tell the tale. We are letting uh, our interviewees take us through their stories and, and share them with us. You know, sometimes we used to use the host and the uh, narrator as kind of a crutch. You know, yeah. if there was a bridge you needed to fill in or a fact that someone didn't talk about, you could always go, oh, well, we'll just do that in narration. <laughs> Can't do that anymore. So it's it's a purer form of documentary. I think it's more docu. And also the other big thing is we're getting about 45 minutes to tell one story. So we can really do a deep dive on a story. Before we were doing three stories for a one hour on network or on Lifetime, you know, so they would only get about 15, 10 to 15 minutes per story. Now we're really getting to explore the minutia of a case and really take someone through it and examine a story completely. Now, I did look at your resume a little bit. I always do whenever oh I talk to somebody. <laughs> and I, I saw that you've actually worked on a bunch of documentaries and projects yes. like exploring mysteries and historical, you know, true stories. And you are, I, I think... Uh, by looking at your resume, a reenactment expert, you've worked on a bunch of stuff with reenactments. I've always wanted to ask somebody this question who has that specialty. What is your philosophy about that, adding that visual fiction to a nonfiction project? Because I, I know that there are different ways to approach it. I think you. I think that like if someone has done it a lot, you probably have a philosophy around it, right? Yeah, there is. I mean, and each time you approach reenactment or recreation, uh, people... Uh, call it different things, you have to think of the style of the show. And some shows go more minimalist, you know, on it. So it's in quote unquote impressionistic imagery. So, you know, it's the smoking cigarette in the ashtray, the hand setting the drink down on the bar, you know, the coat on the coat rack, you know, those kind of things, the bloody knife on the floor, whatever it might be. And sometimes you go almost the opposite and you're making movies and you're doing traditional narrative uh, filmmaking with written scripts that have lines. And I've done both. It's just a matter of what the style of the show is. Uh, Unsolved falls somewhere in the middle. You know, we like to be impressionistic. We like to create imagery, but we are kind of trying to make it cinematic. So we are seeing characters in sc on screen. We are seeing them moving through. And I think the way we weave together B-roll, actual footage and our our uh, recreations, it, we try to make it or I try to make it seamless, you know, so that you're blending these images and it feels like one storytelling experience instead of feeling like, OK, we're just cutting to the fake actors now or we're, you know, you shouldn't ever be aware of that. And I think the style that we've established at Unsolved Mysteries and that everyone works very hard to elevate the level to does that you feel like it's one seamless storytelling experience as opposed to feeling the file footage the interview piece the reenactment piece it should mesh together and it does i think and you have to do the same thing in this story in particular with setting because uh you're in minnesota here and you're representing a place that's very stark very cold and yes. there's like a seasonal change in this story can you just talk about that because you actually had to like really show us 
um, basically make the viewer feel like this cold, stark landscape here. And again, you're, you're working in a television format and it felt very theatrical, like you had these big sweeping shots and so forth. Um, it's cold there, right, though, right? It's very cold. Yeah. And, and we, we approached it. I always approach these shows like a movie. I don't I don't think of Unsolved as a as a uh, documentary TV show. I mean, we go out with an incredibly talented uh, uh, and creative crew that would be, you know, equivalent to any small independent feature that I've directed. And uh, what we did for the Josh episode is that it is a seasonal change. You know, Josh disappeared on a November night uh, in uh, 20 years ago. Um, but then the investigation stretched over the cold uh, winter period of of uh of minnesota so we went in september and shot the first portions of this show and then we went back in december when it was cold when it was snowy when the trees were and the lakes had frozen over and we went back and did two more days of principal photography to get that cold snowy time and we literally shot two nights on the saint john's campus uh, where I looked at my first AD at like 10 p.m. because we would start around like three in the afternoon and go till four in the morning, you know, to do the night sequences. And he looked down, he says, it's 10 p.m. and zero degrees mm. right now. So we were out shooting all night long in like zero degrees. But, you know, the crew was was really great. Uh, but I can definitely tell you Minnesota is cold at night in the winter. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really struck by that campus, too. It had some sort of like brutalist mid-century architecture. It was very isolated. What a place, right? Yeah, it's very, you know, it's a, a Catholic school. Um, and it has this very sort of modern kind of cathedral at the center of it that really looks like something like a I mean, no offense to the campus, but it looks like a Bond villain's headquarters, yeah. you know, to me. You know, and and from wherever you come, driving across this countryside, precisely, it stands on a hill. Like you can see it from everywhere. It looks like a giant shield, you know, and it's very eerie. The campus is is indeed isolated. And when you're there at night in some of these parts of it, it's a little, it's a little spooky for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about November 9th, 2002. Josh is heading to a poker game. But he makes a stop before that. If you don't mind reminding the listeners and me, could you just give us the TikTok on his night that night? Yeah. So Josh's night began back at his his own dorm room across campus with his roommates. They'd done a little pre-gaming there and were drinking. And then they had arranged to to go to a poker party at another dorm across campus. Josh's uh, friend Nick, who's in the episode, had gone over to... Uh, another campus to Josh's girlfriend's uh, ex-girlfriend at the time to uh, watch a movie. So Josh and his roommates then cross campus to this other dorm to attend the poker game, poker party. Partway down the sidewalk, Josh uh, forgets something. Uh, he keys back into his his dorm room. We know this because there's a key record um, for the uh, the dorm because it's an electronic key card back then. We assume that he probably went back to get some more beers to take to the party because he comes to the party with beers in his pocket. Then shortly before midnight, he gets up to go to the bathroom uh, at the party. And some people report maybe seeing someone go out the door of the apartment. They're not sure it was Josh. But at some point, everyone kind of realizes Josh isn't there anymore. Hmm. And they just assume he went home. And at that point, he was never seen again. Hmm. 
You mentioned, Nick, that he was at Katie Benson's apartment, right? Yes, that's correct. Can you talk about he and Katie Benson's relationship? Because they were very close, but they were no longer dating at the time. And she actually had somewhat of a relationship with his friend Nick, which some people thought might be related, but doesn't really seem so, right? So Josh and Katie were were high school sweethearts, and they had gone together throughout high school. He's very handsome, blonde with blue eyes. He was athletic. He had a great sense of humor. And I think a lot of people didn't get to see that side of him because he always came across as very confident and studious. And then when it came time to go to college, Josh went to St. John's University and Katie went to the sister college, which was about five miles away. Uh, and they were able to keep in touch and they were able to continue dating and actually actually had some uh, classes together. At some point during their sophomore year, they uh, agreed that maybe they should stop seeing each other romantically and decided to stay friends. That had happened about a month before Josh's disappearance. At some point, Katie and Nick started to get closer romantically and they had considered dating for a little bit but you know both of them said to me that at some point it just didn't feel romantic and they decided to to be friends that period of time during Josh's disappearance was really from my gathering and understanding a time period where Katie and Nick were were still sort of trying to figure out what they were in the post Josh Katie relationship hmm. So I just want to go over a couple of details. Josh arrives at the poker party alone. Nothing really unusual happens at the party, right? Uh, Josh arrives with his roommates, okay. two of his roommates, and he arrive at the party together. Everything right. seems normal. Uh, Josh has some food, drinks, plays a game of poker, and then disappears. According to people at the poker party, he just got up and left the party without saying anything to anybody. One person stated that they believed he was going to the bathroom. In this case, both the apartment uh, front entry door and the bathroom are kind of in the same direction. So if someone wasn't paying attention, they wouldn't know which way he was going. Now, according to his friend Dana, I asked her point blank, do you remember Josh from high school ever leaving a party without saying goodbye to anyone? And she said, absolutely not. Hmm. So the only unusual thing in that evening of the party for me is that Josh left without saying goodbye to his roommates, to his friends. He just literally up and goes out the door or goes to the bathroom and then out the door, but never says to anyone where he's going. Yeah. It strikes me as almost like he, he behaved almost as somebody like that wasn't feeling well at a party. You know what I mean? Like that Irish mm -hmm. goodbye, like, I'm not doing yeah. great. You know what I mean? Although St. John's is a small campus, you know, it is divided down the middle by Stumpf Lake. And his apartment was on the other side of the water from the party. How do we know that he was heading in the direction of his apartment after he left the party? We believe that he did head back toward his uh, apartment because at around midnight, there were two other students uh, who were crossing the bridge that connects the two parts of campus. And they recall seeing a figure in a gray hoodie crossing the bridge, passing them at that point that evening. And that matches the description of what Josh was wearing. He was wearing a gray St. John's hoodie that evening. From those two eyewitnesses, we can place Josh on or near the bridge that crosses Stumpf Lake somewhere around midnight. Hmm. So Josh obviously wouldn't have been the first college student to spend the night someplace else other than their dorm room. How long was it until a, the real alarm was raised about him being missing? This was a Saturday night and sometime on Sunday, 
he had an appointment for a thing he was doing with the uh, uh, mock trial club that he and Nick were part of. Uh, when he didn't show up for that, people started to wonder where he was. And then his friends started calling each other or speaking to each other or hitting each other up on uh, instant messenger. I remember this is now 20 years ago. So at the time, you know, AOL instant messenger was connecting people's computers on campus and they were, you would see little message boxes pop up on you. We didn't have cell phones with texts and stuff. So a lot of the students and people we talked to say, oh yeah, I started instant messaging people saying, anybody know where Josh is? Have you seen Josh? By late in the day, as evening started to approach, Campus security or campus safety, I think it's called at St. John's, got involved when the students contacted them and they called Josh's mom and said, Josh is missing. You need to call the sheriff's department and file a missing persons report because the the family had to do that rather than campus security. Hmm. So there was this initial search, but there's also this considerable amount of open land, bodies of water within walking distance of the campus right around it, even more obviously if you travel by car. Were there enough resources you think put into this initial search for Josh or did it stay really within the campus area? That first night they did kind of a friend's and the responding officers did a, a search around the campus. And then by morning, it continued to expand. And then by, you know, that week, there were hundreds of people, people on horseback, helicopters, an extensive search was done of the entire area. There were numerous agencies involved in the search efforts. The Stearns County Sheriff's Office was the lead investigative agency. The National Guard was eventually called in to help with searches because, you know, the college campus part itself where, you know, students would go was relatively small, but the area owned by St. John's was massive. To my understanding, it's one of the, you know, with National Guard, one of the largest searches uh, at that time in Minnesota. So there was obviously this theory that either by accident or by foul play, Josh's body might be in Stump Lake. Can we say with 100% certainty that it was not there? After dragging the lake, searching it, divers, several occasions through the fall and then into the next spring, um, law enforcement and most other agencies have concluded that there is no body in Stump Lake or the other surrounding lakes. So there were other bad things happening on campus. It really strikes me like what a dark time this was for this college. Yes. I was really surprised that his disappearance sort of happened with the context of these other met young men who were found dead, like in the same area. At the time that Josh disappeared, there was several college-age students that were missing. All were about the same age, vanished at night. Could the unsolved disappearances be linked? There was a theory that the serial type killer was traveling up and down the Mississippi River here, abducting these people and, and killing them. That's really interesting. And the fact that his case isn't seem, doesn't seem to be linked or they don't think it's linked to those cases, right? Right. I mean, there was, you know, at the time there were two other disappearances of young college men who were the same sort of age, blonde, good looking young men. And then there was some thought that this might be a pattern but then the other two cases were solved within the year, and both young men had uh, alcohol-related instances and had fallen into bodies of water, which had then led investigators to believe that perhaps 
you know, Josh had been at a party, he had had some alcohol that, you know, the campus is surrounded by lakes, you know, the natural first instinct is, okay, let's, let's look in the water that he might be in the water. And that that's the direction they went with initially. Um, the other bad thing that was happening there was the sex abuse scandal involving the college. At the time Josh disappeared, there was um, a, a lot of news stories coming out about things happening at the, the monastery or the abbey at St. John's. More allegations of clergy sex abuse at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville. Today in Stearns County Court, two civil lawsuits were filed alleging abuse of students dating back some 40 years. Was there any potential connection to Josh and this and this sex abuse scandal? There were some people who raised issues and questions as to whether some of the the priests and staff at the college who had been accused and and convicted of of these uh, these crimes could have been involved in Josh's disappearance. As we dug into the story and talked to more people, I don't believe that that played a factor in in uh, Josh's disappearance. You know, Josh's father. Brian has some very strong feelings about the school and about what the school may or may not be hiding. I will say the school was cooperative, you know, with us in the production because I, you know, they want to solve this too. But to a point, you know, like the Catholic Church, they're a very private organization. So they were very strict about our shooting, very strict about places we could shoot, could show. You know, there's always that question as to what may have happened. And since we don't know what happened to Josh, people still ask questions about that. There was one suggestion from Josh's father, Brian, that Josh had very strong feelings about the priest who had had committed the sex abuse and was investigating it further himself and and writing a report. Hmm. None of that was ever found on his hard drive. Uh, No one else knew that. But the the suggestion from Josh's father was that, you know, something was done to Josh because he was digging too deep into this sex abuse scandal. But that was never uh, proven or uh, confirmed by anyone else other than than his father's uh, suspicions. So we do meet Josh's good friend, Nick, who we've talked about. Police learned some things that potentially put him in the frame of this story. Can you remind me what they learned about him? Yeah, Nick was uh, not only Josh's roommate and best friend, they they worked t- together on the mock trial. They had plans to go to, on to law school together and, and form you know, a future, and they were very close. Nick had expressed romantic interest in Josh's ex-girlfriend, Katie. The Stearns County officials had interviewed all of both Katie and Nick separately. Uh, about the events. And as they told the story of where they were and what they were doing the night of Josh's disappearance, there came to be discovered a discrepancy in the timelines that Katie offered and that Nick offered as to when he left her place on the night of Josh's disappearance. And if you're an investigator and there are discrepancies in timelines, you generally want to look into that and make sure it's not just a mistaken recollection or if someone is fudging their timeline to cover up something else. Yeah. And with the discrepancy in Nick's timeline, it would have given him a missing hour at about the time Josh disappeared. So police felt compelled to really dig deeper on that with him. 
So one of the things that is interesting, though, and it's hard for the viewer to miss, is that uh, Nick was worried that Josh might be missing. So he went to use Josh's computer and checked his instant messenger. And then what happened to the computer shortly after was that we learned it was, quote, washed. So that's like an interesting detail, of course, that you know, the viewer doesn't miss, right? Yeah, but but what Nick did is is his room was right across from Josh's. And so Nick opened Josh's door to his room and saw that he wasn't there. And he did not touch Josh's computer, he says at that time, because he actually was thinking that if he woke the computer up, it would mess up the last usage of it. Ah. So, because he could see on his computer in his room that Josh had been dormant on instant messenger since a certain time. I see. And because the way those used to work is the, their little boxes would open up on the screen and it'd say, you know, show the last, the time of the last activity. And he could see Josh hadn't signed on to instant messenger in X number of hours. And so he opened the door, looked, saw Josh there, saw the computer was on, didn't touch it and then called police. So what does it mean to you that somebody ran an internet wash program on Josh's computer after he disappeared? Um, yeah, that's a that's a curious point and one that deserves a lot of attention and law enforcement is focused on it. Who did it and why is the question. This internet washer was something that had not been done previously on this computer. And it was obviously suspicious for us and something that we want to make sure we shed some more light on. It was not normal for Josh's use on the computer. We don't know why someone did that. Josh's father and uncle had stayed in Josh's room for about two weeks during the search, and they had been using the computer. But it was basically almost a public computer, people coming in and out of Josh's room. His roommates could have also had access. So there were searches on Josh's computer that were looking into things like America's Most Wanted, Missing Persons, you know, things that someone would be looking into if your kid had just disappeared and you're trying to figure out resources and stuff. And then this internet washer was used and it was done after Josh's disappearance. So whoever was using it maybe used it for something, some personal use, whatever it might be that they didn't want there, you know, thinking, oh, maybe police are going to look at this computer and I just looked at it to look at my banking or porn or whatever, you know, whoever was staying in Josh's room and, uh, and was just sort of washing their tracks. So it could be, Something as simple as that is just a privacy issue from his family who was using the computer. Or it could be something more nefarious, someone seeing something that maybe wasn't very flattering to Josh in his uh, computer history and wanting to, in the wake of his disappearance, you know, sort of clean up his past. So we do know that washing a computer isn't the same as wiping a computer. And years later, investigators were able to retrieve the data on Josh's hard drive. So remind us, what did they turn up? Yes. So there were a number of examinations of Josh's hard drive. The actual original hard drive is, I believe, still in the possession of the Guimon family. The computer was taken, removed from the room by the family when they cleared out Josh's room. It was never taken into evidence by police because this wasn't a case where there was a murder or something specific. This was a missing person. So it was treated a little differently. And in retrospect, you know, I think investigators wish they had taken certain things into evidence almost immediately and, and sealed his room, but that wasn't done. 
So the computer went to Josh's family. At some point early in the investigation, the Stearns County Sheriff's Office asked for the computer so they could examine it, and it was given to them. And what was done was they cloned Josh's hard drive. And so what this means is they made an exact copy of his hard drive on another drive. So whatever Josh's hard drive had in it was on this other drive. And that's what they've been working off of for years is this clone. And you're able with modern technology to dig a little further in. You know, they did a cursory look at it back 20 years ago, then another examination at another point in the investigation. And then more recently, in the past few years, they were able to dig a little deeper and they were able to find that Josh had been using a lot of uh, Yahoo Messenger accounts and that he had multiple Yahoo Messenger accounts, uh, one of which was what you might expect. It was his name, Josh, and I think the zip code of the the campus or the St. John's area. Another one was Big Jugs. It was a a girl's name in Big Jugs. Uh, I forgot uh, what it was, but Big Jugs. And this other personality or other account, he was portraying himself as a woman. And he was going on messenger account as a woman and there was a, you know, a female avatar for him. And so he was communicating with men as a woman. What we don't know is, was Josh doing this as a, as a gag or having fun? Or was he exploring some aspect of his sexuality that he hadn't shared with family and friends? Hmm. And uh, so what we've been able to find is that other account The messages are long gone off the Yahoo Messenger server, but a computer retains certain information in what we call the cookies and things so that it can load up faster. So it retains the the things that are harder to load up, images or font text or something of websites. So what we found in Josh's hard drive were the profile photos of people he was communicating with on Yahoo Messenger. And we have these and we share them in the show. And we would like the public to look at these photos and see if any of the people in those photos they know and can help identify. Some of them may be very uh, innocent. It might be a distant friend. And they go, oh yeah, that was Josh's classmate from here. So we want to eliminate a lot of those and then get down to who we don't know and then figure out how they knew Josh because there exists the possibility that Josh was communicating with someone maybe to meet them. And if you were going to make a a clandestine meeting with someone and you were exploring your sexuality um, and didn't want people to know, maybe you would leave a party without telling anyone Mm, for a rendezvous. So that's key, I think. Um, We want to find out who those people are that, that were in the Yahoo Messenger accounts. Yeah, it was very interesting to me, too. It seemed like he had he was he was catfishing people, but we don't really know. And of course, we want to make it clear there's obviously nothing wrong with it if he was exploring his sexuality. But absolutely. But there, there could have been risky behavior there, too. We don't actually know. There's just, just no way to know what kind of people he could have encountered on the Internet as well. Right. In the time leading up to Josh's disappearance, authorities got several reports of a suspicious vehicle around campus. It was a Pontiac Sunfire. Why were they interested in this particular car? So in the wake of Josh's disappearance some years later, uh, new investigators are assigned the case. And one of them decided he would go back to St. John's campus security and say, give me all the incident reports for your entire year that Josh disappeared. 
And he painstakingly went through all these reports, you know, drunken student here, loud music here. And then he found this one report of a Pontiac Firebird that was pulled over in a part of campus that was known as kind of a hookup spot. They noticed a college-aged male get out of the front passenger seat and run off into the darkness. Life safety in the first report uh, detailed that the person that took off running uh, was a college-aged male. They weren't able to tell uh, much more than that. But in the second report, life safety was able to speak with um, another college-aged male who was in the front passenger seat of that vehicle. Life safety detailed in both reports that the, the passenger in the front passenger seat was not identified in either case. It didn't add up. Um, it looked like some kind of a hookup. And then the same car was stopped again on campus in a similar situation. So this, to the investigators, said, there's this car, there's this individual who may be hooking up with young students on the down low. Um, maybe this is connected to Josh. And what we want to know is who was that student that jumped out of that car in the incident report? If they are out there, we'd like to speak to them. We would, the authorities would like to speak to him to find out who the man was in the car, you know, how he met, he met the student. Was it on Yahoo Messenger? Did it fit a pattern of communication that Josh entered into? And, and see if that's somehow connected to to Josh's disappearance. Mm. That, you know, is what we're we're hoping to find out is to get that. I was really struck by how emotional Lieutenant Vic Weiss was when talking about this unsolved mystery. You know, it's kind of a cliche when you have a cop who says, oh, it's the case I couldn't solve. I'm really frustrated. Yeah. But it is very clear this is not just another case to him, right? This is not just another case to Vic. You know, Vic is, you know, first and foremost, a, a, a really incredible human being and, and you know, we're really grateful for him to share his time and the investigation. And he's one of those cops that just cares about finding justice for this family. And it does get to him. You know, that was, you know, that was something that just came out naturally in the interview. It's important to me personally. Disappointment in this case is... And I know even talking to him, he's like, oh, you're probably going to put that in the show, aren't you? You know, because because, you know, they want to be stoic. They want to be professional, you know, investigators do. And, but they're human beings. And the impact that this young man's disappearance has had on an entire community, the the friends and family and generations now of law enforcement, you know, who are investigating this is staggering. There are people who still cannot get on with her, their lives. You know, you you watch Katie in the interview and she was being very brave to come and talk about her relationship with Josh. I mean, all these people are are triggered by talking about it. And it was very, very hard to sit with them. You know, a 45 minute show goes by. Each of those people I sat with in a chair with cameras on them for upwards of five to six hours taking breaks, you know, sobbing uncontrollably and having to stop and then recompose themselves to continue the interviews. That's what you don't see is, is the amount of emotional impact this has to just talk about it. And Katie, I think to me, clearly Josh was the love of her life. I mean, she's married and has children. I'm sure she's in a good place, but there is still a part of her heart who misses Josh probably because the fact that there is no kind of closure to an, a relationship that was 
was ending or could have evolved into a friendship. It, he was just stolen from her and stolen from the lives of his his mother and father and from this community. And each person reacts differently with sorrow or his father tends to react, you know, a little bit with with anger, you know, rightfully so. His son was stolen and trying to find the people who did this. Police, you know, try to be stoic and try to be single-minded and and professional, but you cannot help but become emotionally involved because we're human beings. Even us as documentarians and filmmakers are are drawn into the emotions of the families. I know I am. I mean, this is a very was a very hard episode to do at times, you know, just because you'd watch all this video of this young man in the prime of his life and his graduation speech and all the things and the people that he was doing. And you just realize that this person will never get the chance to be the person that everyone is expecting him to be. Uh, you, to a person, everybody I interviewed said Josh was going to be president of the United States. They did. They and did. Th- that wasn't a question in my interview. They volunteered that. Hmm. And that says a lot. So now you've gotten to tell Josh's story and the story about, you know, what happened to Josh potentially on this huge platform on Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Where do you hope the case goes from here? I really hope we find out what happened to Josh. I want to find the person that stole Josh from all these people's lives. As much as we want to hold out hope, I do believe after doing this show that Josh is deceased. I think if he was alive, he would find a way to reach out to his family and friends. He doesn't seem like the kind of person that would stay away. And I do believe at some point on that bridge close to midnight, 20 years ago this year, somebody met Josh He climbed in a car and something happened to him. And we don't know what, but some kind of foul play uh, happened. He, He met his end with a mistake, with the wrong person. And who that person is and how it came to be in that moment on the bridge, uh, we do not know. But somebody has the answer to this. Somebody watching the show may recognize one of those photos. Somebody watching the show may remember seeing a car on campus or something. We just need that person to come forward and share information. And I know, you know, from talking to Stearns County and talking to Vic that anyone who comes forward they will, you know, protect their anonymity. They just want the information, you know, and I, we encourage people to call Stearns County uh, Sheriff's Department, Vic Weiss or anyone else there. And if you have information, please share it. Well, I hope the tips come rolling in. Gabe Torres, thank you so much for talking to me about your episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed being here. And, and uh, please, everyone, please tune in. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Gabe Torres. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>